we want to give you a quick heads up about a minor production glitch in this episode. Due to a recent software update on Zoom, my voice and our guest voice are on the same track, making it a bit harder to mix. Though our team did their best to remedy this, we apologize for any small audio quality issues this may cause. But we promise the episode series is still worth your time. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Today, we're talking about quiet luxury with special guest, NYU MBA professor and brand Lux head, Thomayi Sadari. She is an international luxury authority with a unique background encompassing design, humanities, and business. She specializes in luxury marketing and branding to help clients launch and manage luxury brands that focus on creative innovation. As the academic director of the Fashion and Luxury MBA at NYU, she aligns product offerings with market demands by drawing on her interdisciplinary training. She also heads Brand Lux, a brand consultancy that interprets culture and its impact on business. Thomayi's expertise is further reflected in her contributions to various publications, including Luxury Daily, Vogue Business, among many others. She is also the host of the Pop Lux podcast, which explores luxury through unique objects and stories. Her latest book further dives into her method and is called Rethinking Luxury Fashion, The Role of Cultural Intelligence and Creative Strategy. Here's part one of my conversation with Professor Thomayi Sadari about quiet luxury. I'm Britt, and this is The Furious Curious. Professor Thomai Sadari, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to join us on the uh, Furious Curious podcast. It's great to be with you. My pleasure. Very good to see you. Clearly from the introduction, you've written a lot about, you've taught a lot about, you've spoken a lot about, and conducted a lot of business in and around this topic of quiet luxury. You know, I'm thinking Luxury Daily, you've, you've written for Vogue, the books that we'll talk about, your podcast, Populux, uh, your brand co- consultancy, Brandlux, uh, that all comes to mind, uh, comes into the fold in our conversation. But so for our listeners, we're going to be unpacking quiet luxury today. But before we dive into that topic, I just really want to get a sense of, you know, what got you interested in this, in this area of, of luxury marketing and branding? Yeah, your, your story behind that. Oh, the story is, uh, I think, unexpected for most people who know my work in the luxury marketing field, because I actually started as a designer. I started mm. architecture. I'm Greek originally. That's my accent. And uh, I got my license to practice in Greece. But I knew that I wanted to do more. I was um, something that I got really from that part of my training uh, was attention to detail and a, a deep understanding on the nature of materials and what materials can do. So quality, uh, how do you achieve quality through design and how materials and processes allow you to perfect the end result. Now. I never practiced because I took off and I came to the US. And so uh, a whole other journey started here. I got into media 
And, and then I decided to pursue my PhD in architectural history. So more design, more art history. And of course, once you start thinking about art history, which is really the interpretation of history through art objects, um, that really got me into looking at things that uh, had not been part of my life, but uh, we have so much access to them here in New York City through all the amazing, amazing collections and museums. And so that was a very natural development through this time in my life. But when I finished my PhD, I realized that I didn't want to be a professor. How ironic, right? <laughs> so there I was <laughs> with my PhD, not wanting to be in academia because I found, I found it at the time very isolating. And I had been extremely inspired by the architect I wrote my dissertation on, which interestingly, I'm giving you the long story because I love it to, to quiet luxury. Yeah. He was uh, Albert Meyer was his name, a New York City based architect who actually designed a lot of apartment buildings of quiet elegance and quiet opulence. And these buildings have been landmarked in New York City, but there are buildings that were built in 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. So the peak of modernism where design had become much more minimal, but also the emphasis on that uh, aestheticism of, of natural materials and what the material can do for uh, the end result was very important at the time. So I'm, I'm just keeping that at the back of my mind as I'm developing as a professional. And I'm super inspired by him. And, and, and that makes me think, oh, I need to do more. I need to get more degrees. <laughs> so I'm going back to school at NYU Stern to get my MBA and learn how to work with people, how to work on projects. And had this idea that when I exit with my MBA, perhaps I get into real estate development, maybe doing things that have this core idea um, of a quiet, aesthetic, uh, very elevated type of, of building and, and help New York City become prettier. Of course, while I was studying, the um, financial crisis happened, 2008, and made me realize that that dream was not visible at that specific time. So that's okay. You know, I got my MBA and uh, out of necessity, more than having a goal, I started consulting in the fashion industry here in New York City. And I did a lot of work pro bono at the beginning, but I really enjoyed working with entrepreneurs, with people who were in the creative industry. So you know, word of mouth in New York City travels very, very fast. So from one fashion designer, I got to work with another fashion designer and then with a product designer. So all these ideas and all the, let's say, historical information that I had gotten in my previous two chapters in my life, design and history, I actually got to experience them as they were evolving and developing in New York City through startups, through medium-sized enterprises. And, and it was that consulting that I think prepared me for what I'm doing today. And it is actually also the heart of what my consultancy is today through Brand Lux. So 
now I can get you to the finish line, which is that uh, it was at that time after I had worked for three, three to four years that um, NYU Stern came to me, asked me to design the core marketing course, luxury marketing course, and teach it because they knew my background already since I had been a student there and they knew my work post MBA. And that started me on the last 12 to 13 years on this, on this career, really getting truly immersed in luxury companies, luxury marketing principles and practicing luxury branding and helping clients, but also teaching these things. So my life has been divided um, between practice and theory, academia and the market, and one informs the other both ways. And all this to say that it was not designed at all. It, it just happened very organically out of my true passion for what I had understood early on in my career, that materials matter processes matter and mm. once you master these two areas then you can do whatever you want to do in life and so today i am super privileged because now i'm the director of the fashion and luxury mba at stern which launched five years ago which is also an indication that perhaps i was lacking the sense that my career happened and developed as the market was growing and as the luxury market and people's consumers interest in luxury goods and luxury fashion and luxury everything coincided with how my own career evolved and and this is fantastic because now i see every year i have even more students coming in with at least intellectual curiosity to understand what the differences are between mass marketing and what you would get in any you know intro 101 of marketing in any school and luxury marketing which is something totally different that's great that's my story wow i love it no that's great that's great you said a lot of wonderful things there i hope we can get into a bunch of that what was interesting uh, before we proceed is this idea of uh i think you said opulence and elevated and luxury and what what what's been interesting diving into this topic is some people view luxury as 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 a lot of stuff or 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 maybe even opulence it could be it could be that word or in uh, an elevated sophisticated way to boil things down to their essentials which is kind of almost the opposite of opulence if if uh if you want to take a certain interpretation of it so i'm interested in in us kind of unpacking that dynamic i think that's at the heart of this this whole topic but um i mean you'll have to be patient with with me it, you know we we come uh, we come from a beginner's mind here at uh, at the furious curious so as most of our topics we come kind of innocent and not really knowing much and maybe asking the dumb questions and so i get i get paid to ask dumb questions which is great because i would ask them anyway yeah so broadly i think you know we're here we're going to be curious about why this has become a trending topic now and what it really says about our culture and 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 how per, perhaps our culture has evolved their views on wealth so i think the first question I can ask you is, you know, how would you define uh, Thamai? Like, how would you define quiet luxury and explain how maybe this differs from uh, the traditional notions of luxury and what makes it unique and appealing to, to people? 
Yes, quite a luxury is um, the combination of that understated sophistication, but when the expression happens through natural materials mm. and materials whose nature actually accentuates whatever idea the designer wants to accentuate. So for example, mm. uh, a, an oversized cozy sweater is better expressed, is better realized when the thread that has been used, uh, the wool that has been used to make it is of the ultimate quality because that is what quality means, to take the nature of material, a material, and augment it, stretch it out to the maximum. So when you say, I want a cozy sweater, sure, you can find something that is uh, similar, but it's made of polyester, but you will realize that once you wear it, once or twice or three times, it's going to lose its shape, it's going to lose this, this sense of, uh, uh, you know, fluffiness and, and warmth. And natural materials have this, it's inherent to what natural materials are. If the designer knows how to work with the nature of the material, the end result is always an enhanced version of what the original material could be. So quite luxury, other than sophistication and understatement, is a lot about objects, could be fashion, could be products for the home, could be homes, entire homes, or boats that have been designed in a way that um, the materials themselves find their best end expression, the best end realization that they could have, and create something very elegant, usually very minimal, and, and very sensorial. And this is also important. So a sweater maybe look good on Instagram, even a crappy sweater, and you touch it in your hands, you will definitely realize that it's very different from that other sweater that has been made with uh, wool or alpaca or whatever other uh, luxury material they have used. And this is something that I think we have lost in the last 10 to 15 years, precisely because we are getting all our information mostly from social media. I'm not accusing, I'm a friend, I'm using all social media. But sure. But we have been trained to become visual mm -hmm. consumers of culture as opposed to being out in the world and touching our clothes before buying them, deprived of our own ability to distinguish the good from the better and definitely mm. the best from the better. <laughs> so, uh, so it's part of, of how people uh, behave, what our lifestyle uh, is all about, which is definitely being glued in front of a screen and observing the world through the screen, as opposed to having opportunities to educate ourselves about how the marble should feel when we touch it, or a piece of wood, or a very good sweater, or a very good coat, or anything that is tactile. And it's not only pretty to wear, but it is pretty to touch, pretty to smell, pretty to look at, and, and basically, actually, all our senses. There is a very interesting video um, that was produced by Hermes, Hermes being one of 
the most well-known luxury brands, but also a brand that does indeed produce some sort of quiet luxury because not all their product lines are quiet. But in that video, uh, one of their artisans explained that he got into that artisanship because he started out as a tenor, as a young boy, he was a tenor, a, a, a opera. Oh, singer. Yeah. Okay. And then when his voice broke during um, uh, his um, teen years, he couldn't continue any longer. He had mm. lost the gift of singing and he went begrudgingly into this craftsmanship just to have a job. And there, through the tactility of working with leather and uh, stretching it and cutting it, he was so taken by the uh, singing abilities that it has when you touch it. So every type of hmm. leather responds differently to the touch. And of course, he's so immersed into working with this material that he likened that experience to the art of singing, except he was not doing the singing, the leather was doing the singing for him. That's, that's very, uh, <laughs> very esoteric uh, and yeah. not my personal experience, it's somebody else's experience, but it's a great example to show people how much we're missing out by not being more invested in exploring the world, not only through vision, but through our, all our senses. And luxury has traditionally been very much of a sensorial experience, not only quiet luxury, luxury in general. So people who can design good products always think about other properties and not only about the main property of the object itself. That's That's amazing. I, you know, it is interesting to hear how our culture, perhaps this one person's observation, how we've shifted from it, it, it's quiet luxury almost seems to be a potential reaction or couched in reaction to fast fashion. You know, when I think about, and there's no, no judgments on fast fashion, but, um, cause that's its own art form. It's its own platform of expression. And, and I understand that, but it's based on fast turn, hence fast. It's based on fast turnaround. And what's interesting is I think it seems that a lot of people have accustomed themselves maybe through social media to create that demand. Oh, I need, I need the latest and greatest thing versus taking a kind of a slower, maybe a longer term perspective on what you're purchasing. Is that a good way to set the two apart? This is perfect, actually. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking slow, uh, mm -hmm. slow luxury is another term that became popular for a little bit. It's still very popular in academia. There are still tons of papers written about slow luxury, but it didn't quite catch fire like quiet luxury did. So mm -hmm. emphasis here, but absolutely, you're absolutely correct. And luxury is synonymous with timelessness. It is synonymous with slower methods of production because you cannot rush something for which you're seeking to achieve perfection, right? You can, mm -hmm. rush it. how could you rush it? And, um, and, and that is what, uh, allows those who are involved in the making of these luxury things, whatever they are to be a little bit more critical about their own work, to be curious, to be inquisitive, to, um, insert lots of 
uh, aspects that otherwise would have gone unresolved. And this is what fast fashion suffers from. Fast fashion is a two-dimensional copy of what a better, more famous designer has usually done, right? This is what fashion brands do and how they sell because that two-dimensional copy is very easy to produce. And uh, I'm exaggerating, right? It's not a two-dimensional. Of course, it's a t-shirt or whatever it is that you're buying, but but it's made based on the principle that we only want to copy the design. So right. construction is not copied. Materials are not right. copied. Techniques are not copied. And the time that it takes to create a better product cannot be copied in fast fashion. And even though we are seduced by the fact that fast fashion items or fast items in general have mm -hmm. the same uh, appearance like those of higher quality once you consume those that have been produced in such quick turnaround it is very very easy to get disappointed because all apart almost designed to disappoint right. <laughs> one could say yes. to, to yeah. yeah sorry to interrupt you but absolutely yeah you know i was thinking just at, at this point um i was thinking about my grand my grandfathers both of them very different men. One was an engineer. Uh, one was uh, in PR, and the one in PR was very, very frugal. But was one thing. What was interesting is uh, when they both passed away, and one passed away in '93, one passed away in 2012. I got to inherit some of their clothes, which is kind of you know why would you wear somebody who's not no longer with us? Why would you wear their clothes? But what I found really interesting is there some of this stuff was from the 60s like i have a i have a flannel i think it's a pendleton flannel shirt wool it's not flannel it's wool mm -hmm. and my mom said yeah this he bought this in 1968 and i still wear it i still wear it and you know i find that that's so incredible in 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 modern you know in modern society in terms of of, of how we buy clothes and how we view clothes in particular or or maybe items more broadly so i just found that that that's what that was the first time that i was like oh things you there are things that are made to last actually uh versus things that are made to made to to be obsolete very very soon so i just found that that was my first kind of personal experience with garments in terms of how how well something is made and and taking that to the extreme something literally from the 60s is still i can still get it dry cleaned it's still it's a, you know one of the buttons cracked and that's it but you know and and there's also meaning behind it of course there's the sentimentality around that as well one question Thomae, there's there's other words that surround this quiet luxury topic and i want to make sure if they you know you talk about synonyms there's inconspicuous consumption i don't know if you've heard that term um you know when people spend money for their own benefits such as a vacation buying things rather than buying things that demonstrate or externally demonstrate wealth or then there's like stealth wealth right i don't know if you've heard that term as well practice of living and kind of looking understated right at least in, in certain communities are those synonymous with that are there are there nuanced differences no i do think that they're synonymous and of course you know um we're here today discussing about quiet luxury and all these other iterations of luxury precisely because the press has been uh, obsessed with this cultural change that has mm -hmm. happened recently and we 
we too are obsessed and we're here discussing about it but um but i say that because this is not the first time that the practice of quiet luxury has taken place or that stealth wealth hasn't existed mm -hmm. before but this idea of conspicuous or inconspicuous consumption is what characterizes our society today so today most people practice a conspicuous consumption of everything including mm -hmm. their lunch their breakfast their dinner uh where they went uh for a drink right everything has been conspicuously displayed on a variety of social media a lot of younger people are consuming the moment rather than the thing experience uh, and then and then um display conspicuously uh, show off about it and a lot of fashion brands picked up on this uh quite early uh, and there are two waves that that conspicuousness became very important one was the 90s 1990s, where sure. in the 2000s, <laughs> 1990s, where uh, the marketplace started expanding because of globalization and uh, fashion brands who wanted to remain prevalent and, and relevant and top of mind, they mm -hmm. started having a lot of product lines and putting their logos everywhere. I remember this. Yeah. Detrimental, of course, right? Because it's the opposite of what a luxury brand should be doing. But that was a moment of conspicuousness. And then if you think about um, uh, what we were coming out from, which was uh, postmodernism, big colors, big clothing, a lot of powerful signage out in the mm. world. So the semiotics of the 90s is all about maximalism, about noise, about conspicuousness, mm -hmm. and a lot of consumption. And for a variety of reasons, I don't want to make it boring for your audience, but you know, we go through the year 2000 and the uncertainty of what mm -hmm. the millennium would bring, and then the crash of the internet bubble, and then the recovery, but then finally, in those years between 2003 and 2008, when the markets again expanded, was a time of a lot of conspicuousness and a lot of consumption and expenditure, at least in the US, where we're privileged hmm. and where the consumer is usually strong. And so there is a prehistory of the history that we're discussing today, and that is indeed the period between 2008 and 2012, when the remaining um, you know, of the previous 5%, those who hadn't lost all their assets in the financial crisis felt guilty about displaying mm. their wealth, about showing off with logos, showing off with brands that were very easy for the rest of us to see and become envious. So they, we had then, back then, this first wave of stealth wealth and the stealth mm. wealth created the anti-logo movement. So it was not fashionable at all to show your Fendi, your Chanel, mm -hmm. Louis Vuitton, precisely because uh, people knew that others were suffering at the time. And then from 2012 to today, it's the final stage of, of where the uh, luxury market um, 
how the luxury market has evolved with tremendous expansion, with China mm. making mm -hmm. luxury brands really powerful, huge uh, consumer numbers coming from Asia. So from 2012 all the way to COVID 2020, these were eight wonderful years for luxury brands. And that allowed them to recover from that stealth uh, mm. that, that people had adopted earlier on. And so we have had a return of logos. We have had return of conspicuousness. And again, for me, um, the appearance always is the expression of a social uh, movement or trend that is underneath what we see around yep. us, right? So for me, the social trend is all of these things were happening as social media allowed people to display private moments of their life, what mm -hmm. they're consuming, how they're consuming, and actually uh, crave fame through the mm -hmm. consumption of branded brands, uh, branded products, including uh, spirits, right? It's, it's very interesting to watch mm -hmm. people going to a nightclub and, and displaying what type of champagne they're consuming what type of whiskey they're consuming and and what that implies for them and so this the 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 consumer uh has always been many things right there are people who uh come into the luxury market with educate i don't mean education that is uh from an educational institution but much more um understanding of what a good quality product should be mm -hmm. and and those who have that sort of understanding uh are the ones who are not necessarily seeking out those big logos these people have always been around and i know that it will sound elitist but it is the result of either a very noble uh trait that you have in you you're an artist you're someone who is not interested in how the social collective perceives you um uh and and you only want to have things that are elegant beautiful uh good quality or you are indeed someone who comes from money and money usually implies education and so you have had exposure and you have seen many aspects of luxury and that is what contributes to the education of the consumer and and makes certain consumers more sophisticated than others Am I confusing you? I can. No, it's fascinating. No, this. So what's what's really interesting, and you actually answered a lot of my questions before I had a chance to ask them. But there's a couple of things there. One, it does seem you know as somebody who also works in marketing, I, I do understand the the principle of of um, aspiration. Exactly right. Exactly right. So those who aspire are are reaching for example but i also i do remember just to, just to go back for a second to to the 90s i worked at a department store and i remember this was the years of tommy hilfiger this was the years of polo of nautica where the logos were on everything so i totally i totally remember that and i wonder if it's been an interesting experiment like looking back at that now as case studies what that did to their brand equity it seemed like it was almost a brand equity dump like they just almost 
completely spent all their brand equity. Not all, because yeah. we know that some of them have recovered because have they recovered. their brand equity better. Ralph Lauren, right. very good example. Great example. Yeah. But how much he has done also to recover, right? He has uh, total control over his brand. He has pulled back from uh, uh, partnerships, from wholesale, and, and it, it comes and goes in waves. Sometimes you need to contract so that you regain brand equity and when yeah. you gain the brand equity you expand because then you have revenues and and sales in terms of uh how the business is doing financially but you have to have this contraction period where you protect the brand and you maintain it and then you expand and you extract the value from it in the us uh we don't have necessarily brands that have consistently worked in a way that they maintain their brand equity very few brands other than ralph lauren have also built a dream that aspiration that is greater than just the logo that they had on on their products in the 1990s and i think mm. makes or breaks uh, uh a a brand when it wants to be considered part of the competitive set in the luxury market. If it is only about merchandise and purchasing, mm. everything is a trend and trends come and go. If it is first a dream and mm. the dream is translated into appropriate merchandising and pricing, then that has more staying power. And this is what the European brands have managed to do build the dream first and then um and then um and then we we buy whatever we buy because we want to be part of the dream now the dream in in all of these european brands uh relates to the idea of quiet luxury not for all of them for some of them because some of them create the dream around uh very inspiring uh cases of craftsmanship unique materials that they use and that has been part of their storytelling and so when Xenia creates uh beautiful textiles in their their uh, own manufacturing facilities and then that Xenia piece of fabric becomes a Xenia suit for someone for a man uh, that is already from its core it's a very great quality uh, item and it is that sort of quiet luxury that became very very popular in the last six months that's fascinating i fascinating that some approach you know merchandise first but some actually are, are vision casting the dream first and then you know the merchandise actually supports that dream that's a that's a beautiful way to put it it's a beautiful way to put it um it's fascinating so for example and you know i know we're maybe showing strategies here but like for example, like what would, if you could guess, what would like Ralph Lauren, that dream be, for example? For, for Ralph, the dream is both the successful entrepreneur who has achieved the type of life that an English nobleman would have, that idea of English aristocracy, but he doesn't pretend to be english he's very american so mm -hmm. in american aristocracy yes who is the american aristocrat it is the entrepreneur it is the person who has worked hard but is able to achieve the same experiences in life 
as the English aristocrat would have. And that's why we have so much, um, you know, imagery around the horse in mm -hmm. Florence, even though this is not, you know, the bread and butter of every single New Yorker, but it's very right. inspirational. And, and it relates back to the native land, our native land here in the United States, and the other part of the dream, which is the land, the American land. So mm -hmm. American land comes with its own communities, including Native American communities. And he takes a lot of inspiration out of how these people have used craftsmanship to create um, clothing, to create garments, to create rugs. And, and so you, you see that dream in Ralph Lauren being somewhat, um, it fluctuates. It's somewhere, it's definitely an American dream. Mm -hmm. and it's a dream of success, but it hasn't completely been alienated by its, from its origins. Ah. Its origins being the land, the American land and, and its people. And so the American land and its people is a fairy tale of success. Mm -hmm. Here you can be that entrepreneur who is successful and you can have this other glamorous lifestyle. That totally makes sense. When I when everything you said, I totally see that projected. But yeah, there's there's an, a very Americanness to it. There's a there's a ruggedness to a lot of his his garments, uh, his work. There's a there's almost a Western fairy tale in there sometimes, and I've seen it in the imagery and the photography. So I totally get that. That's 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 amazing. It also the quiet luxury piece also, and and tell me if this is right. There seems to be, and you touched on it a little bit about between 2008 and 2012, there was almost a an embarrassment of expression of wealth. So is part of this simply a kind of pushing that pushing on that topic for a sec is this simply like is there a practical approach to this is it, it, it to do this is is a safer bet you're not a target or whatever you want to say uh seems to be about security as well as practicality simplicity saving time all good attributions for a successful life of course is there is there a dynamic with that here is there just a pure practical approach in in that previous period i would say yes so between two yeah yeah passionate with those who cannot uh, even though you're spending on buying something beautiful and uh -huh. that in reality you're also in the know right because if you're consuming at that very very high level in luxury marketing uh in in the theory of marketing that level is called the absolute consumer mm. so mm -hmm. you break the uh, market, the luxury market into tiers where we have the accessible consumer, which is probably you and I, accessible, right? We are at the bottom tier. And then you have the aspirational consumer in the middle. So the mm -hmm. accessible buys one, makes one purchase, or maybe one or two purchases that are very showy. They have the money to buy the bag, and so they may as well buy something that is recognizable. Mm. And, and instantly elevates their status vis-a-vis -vis the collect, right? That's the mm. accessible consumer. Then you have the aspirational consumer in the middle where you have people who have more money, they have purchasing power, and they can now buy into that dream. And mm -hmm. buying into the dream means, for example, if we talk about the American consumer and an American brand, okay, I want to have everything in my life be by Ralph Lauren, which is mm -hmm. Ralph Lauren has done really well. It's not only about the garments, it's also about the home. 
can have Ralph Lauren paint on my walls, which is definitely more expensive than everything mm -hmm. else, right? Mm -hmm. So I buy into the aspiration and I have the purchasing power to make repeated uh, purchases to complete my lifestyle uh, in a way that pleases me. And, but that's still aspirational because I am buying at a pricing tier that is definitely higher than a premium good. Mm -hmm. It's not extraordinarily high. For example, I'm not the one who will go to Bulgari to buy a necklace and bracelet and earrings from mm -hmm. Bulgari. Bulgari being this very important brand. I don't know if you've been to New York City. They have their mm -hmm. We have We have one in San Francisco here too. Okay, yeah. Great. Yeah. So, so that person who says, oh, I feel lonely today. I'll go buy something for myself. I'll buy a whole suite of jewelry that's the absolute consumer and these are people who can spend anything from a hundred thousand at a time to millions of dollars and and then we're getting back to this idea of who are these one percent of people mm -hmm. percent of people and i think that brings us back to our initial conversation is this a trend is this staying uh, why are we talking about quiet luxury now uh, and and it's of course normal when when what we're consuming, namely streaming services, when when you know these very popular um, series Succession uh, became yeah. a mm -hmm. phenomenon and everyone was watching it, and these are very wealthy people, and some of the outfits and and uh, and and brands that they were wearing are indeed these brands that have no logo and in order for you to know that something is of good quality or comes from a specific brand you need to be in the know and how can you be in the know you need to be out in the market either you do a lot of window shopping with you people who do window shopping without having the purchasing power or you're someone who is used to consuming who knows who these designers are who create the high quality garments but they don't use a logo that can be recognized by everybody and it coincides with all these uh, fluctuations of the uh, economy and how well we feel and how powerful we feel in terms of our spending power and then on top of that uh, what we consume from a cultural perspective and and that was a perfect confluence right of events to have the anxiety about a um about the inflation that we have been experiencing and um uh, and and then watching that particular tv series and wanting to consume and imitate the same lifestyle that we were watching on uh, netflix or whichever platform everyone is watching this year This concludes part one of my conversation with NYU MBA professor and Brand Lux head, Thomayi Sadari, about quiet luxury. Thank you to Professor Sadari for sharing her knowledge and experience with us on the podcast. If you'd like to explore more of her work, please go to brandxlux.com. That's B-R-A-N-D-X-L-U-X.com. Keep following us where you get your podcast for part two of our conversation coming up. You are listening to the Furious Curious Podcast, hosted and produced by me, Britton Rice, along with Chase Domerg, Chaz Quark, Nicole Lazar, 
Nate Betts, and Brian Vandeputty. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at the underscore furious underscore curious and subscribe to the Furious Curious podcast on your favorite platform. We welcome your comments, trollings, and of course your feedback. And please take a moment to rate the show so more listeners like you can discover us. Until next time, stay quietly luxurious and definitely curious. Out. Podcast.